Good morning. After announcements like that, somebody started to applaud. It's almost like you get, yeah, there you go. Okay, yeah, give it, give it up for, for Justin. Yeah. So would you stand? We're going to look at G, the cross and Jesus' death and burial, our fourth study of the cross in Mark 15. I'm going to read verses 33 through 37. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. The actual text we'll be going through is 33 through 47. I'm going to go on through 37 to read, but keep your Bibles open or your, or your widgets or whatever they are that you're watching. I think to intake the Word of God with every sense we have is, is so helpful. So I'm going to have the, the text I'll be going through. You'll have that in your Bibles. All other, and there are a lot of them this morning. All other uh, references we'll have up on the screen. We can read them together. So here we are, Mark 15, verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by, when they heard that, said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Let's pray. So, Lord, we are thankful for your word. Live, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man, woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good word. We know we don't, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And on and on goes, Lord, our hearts in knowing what you, what you tell us, that we must have your word operative in our lives. We must hear the word, but not just hear it, but then to apply it by doing it. So, Lord, I'm asking the things I've prepared, that you break them fresh, feed us, we're hungry. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. Give us a heart to just surrender ourselves to you, trusting you, believing in you, and knowing that you cause all things to work together for good, that you're, you're working in us both to will and to do what pleases you, and that your word by the Holy Spirit is so, so important. So please, Lord, take these things I prepared, break them, bless our time now in your word, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. You can be seated. So Jesus hung on the cross. This is the fourth study on the cross. He hung on the cross for six hours. So listen to these commentary notes that Dr. J. Vernon McGee wrote. His, his ministry is called Through the Bible. He's now been with the Lord, but his ministry lives on. He wrote this. In the first three hours, there was physical light. In the second three hours, there was physical darkness. But in the first three hours, there was spiritual darkness. And in the second three hours, there was spiritual light. Why? Because in those first three hours, man did his very worst. They crucified him. They reviled him. Even those who were hanging on the cross reviled him. And beneath his cross, his enemies are wagging their heads, mocking and ridiculing him as he hangs on the cross. 
But in the second hours, God is working. He was suffering at the hands of man in the first three hours. He was suffering for man in the last three hours. In the first three hours, he was dying because of sin. In the second three hours, he was dying for the sin of the world. During the physical darkness, there was spiritual, the spiritual light of God at work. In those first three hours, sin was doing all it could to destroy him. In the second three hours, he is making his soul an offering for sin. In the last three hours, he is paying for the sins of the world. And it, it was during this period that he was made sin for us. He became sin for us. He was forsaken by God. And yet, at, the, at that time, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. There's this, it's just an incredible thing that we're studying. So the cross of Jesus is one of the, mo, of the many paradoxes of the Christian faith. In it, it is at once the greatest tragedy of the ages and, at the same time, the most glorious victory on earth as it is in heaven. So John Stott, in his book, the cross of Christ wrote this, quote, In daring to write and read a book about the cross, there is, of course, a great danger of presumption. This is partly because what actually happened when God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ is a mystery whose depths we shall spend eternity plumbing. Max Licato, in his book, Six Hours, One Friday, wrote this, Six Hours, One Friday. Let me ask you a question. What do you do with that day in history? If it really happened, if God did commandeer his own crucifixion, if he did turn his back on his own son, if he did storm Satan's gate, then those six hours on Friday were packed with tragic triumph. Those six hours were no normal six hours. They were the most critical hours in history. That's not an overstatement. For during those six hours on that Friday, God embedded in the earth three, anchors point, three anchor points sturdy enough to stand any hurricane. Anchor point number one, my life is not futile. Let me say that again. My life is not futile. Jesus is the one who secures my life, my heart. And Max Licato said, the rock secures the hull of my heart. Secondly, my failures are not fatal. They say amen to that. My failures are not fatal. The one who has the right to condemn me has provided a way to equip me, the cross. And then finally, my death is not final. Say amen. My death is not final. So these first three, the first three hours are nine to noon, crucified. We looked at that last study. This morning, the three hours from noon to 3 p.m. where there's darkness. So verse 33 now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So that would be from noon to 3 p.m. The Passover was celebrated during a full moon, so this could not be, listen, this could not be a solar eclipse. People try and, and somehow explain away what happened. This is not a solar eclipse. This is a supernatural darkness over creation itself as the Creator took upon Himself the sin of the world. It's as though creation itself could not look on. A great darkness and a great earthquake. And it's interesting, Roman historians from that time record that both of these things happened. So it's not just the Bible stating it, it happened. 
in historical documents. Now, there's a fascinating prophecy in Amos. I'll just read it. We'll look at it together. In verse 9, it says, And so it come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentations. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son and its end like a bitter day. So there are seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. We heard the first three last week. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Second one, assured I say to you to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Third one, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. Jesus taking care of his last responsibility to his mother. Then three hours of darkness, as God laid on him the iniquity of us all. As Jesus suffered once for, this, for the, just, the just for the unjust. As Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. As Jesus became a curse for us, the cross. And then Jesus, crying out of that darkness... The ninth hour, he cried out saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You could put the emphasis on words differently, and that's, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wherever you want to put the emphasis, I believe it's on you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus could endure being betrayed by his disciple Judas, he can endure being rejected by his own people and crucified by the same. He can endure being forsaken by all his disciples. He can endure the, such hostility of sinners against himself. But not this. As he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We cannot even begin to grasp this. It is beyond our fallen comprehension. God is not asking us to understand it. How can we? It's as though I can hear him say, take your shoes off your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here is this forsaking of incomprehensible proportion with none to help, with no one to turn to except crying out, why have you forsaken me? Verse 35, some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is call calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. Let him alone. May I say to you, Jesus was never so alone. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, which I want to read in a moment. Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. My God, why have you forsaken me? Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. Hasten to help me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So let us let him speak in his suffering. The eternal one whose hour had now come, the cross. So in Psalm 22, the suffering Messiah written, prophesied 600 years before this ever happened. 
My God and Jesus crying out from the cross points them to this scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, I'm not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the, in the praise of Israel. But I am a worm and no man. I am a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion, the cross. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. Verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel. And I want to go to, over to Hebrews because this fills in for us what's happening. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that, by the, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it is fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect, complete, through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, and here it is, from Psalm 22, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. The fulfillment and the finality of Jesus' victory in the, on the cross through suffering. And then back to Psalm 22. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's. He is the king. They ask, are you the king of the Jews? You say rightly. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over, all, over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive, every knee shall confess Jesus Lord. A posterity shall serve him. It, shall be, it will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to people who will be born that he has done this. Is that incredible or what? I think the best commentary is a hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. You want to sing it with me? How deep the Father's love for us. How vast 
beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which Martha bring Mary sons Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. This last one is awesome. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his have paid my debt. Yeah. <laughs> Why should I gain from his reward? We have no answer. Just like we have, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was happening there is beyond anything we can even begin to comprehend. His salvation of our souls. We cannot give an answer. Except God himself is the answer. So Jesus bearing the curse of sin. And God's just judgment against sin on the cross. In Deuteronomy it says, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. And Galatians picks this up in quoting, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, have become a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus bearing our sins, bearing our penalty, suffering and dying in our place. He is bearing for us as our sin offering, God's wrath against sin. Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And God and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah again, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. No mortal mind can ever comprehend the agony he endured when his soul was made an offering for sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark, Jesus said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
First Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sin in his own body on the tree that we, having, been, having died to sin, might live for righteousness. He died for us. He died in our place by whose stripes you were healed. It's the cross. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, the cross. So Jesus offered then in verse 34, sour wine on a reed. Mark 15.34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a vowed voice, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by, when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah, Eli, Eli, Alama Sabachthani. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. The fifth saying from the cross is, I thirst. In John 19, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Jesus was conscious of fulfilling the scriptures. David prophesied of this event in Psalm 69. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Last week, I said we come back to this. In verse 23, 15, 23, they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it first time. Now, traditionally, pious women would provide the the narcotic drink as an anesthetic to dull the senses, to lessen the excruciating pain. First time. He refused it. He did not take it. He refused any form of painkillers, apparently so that he could go through this suffering with a clear mind. William Lane Craig says this, quote, this first wine represented an offer to ease the pain, to, apt, to opt for a small shortcut, albeit... Not a major one in view of the terrible pain of the cross, but a little one nonetheless. But this offer Jesus refused, and in doing so chose to endure with full consciousness the suffering appointed for him, unquote. First time he rejected it. But then in, chapter, in John chapter 19, verse 29, now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. One of the prominent effects of crucifixion was an overpowering thirst because of the loss of body fluids through open wounds and perspiration. So it would leave the victim's throat, his lips, Jesus in this case, his throat and his lips parts desiccated beyond measure. Now, Jesus, at this point of death, wanting to say his final words that the scripture might be fulfilled, needed moisture. So it's interesting to note that by taking this wine, it would have, it would have the effect of keeping him conscious as long as possible and therefore prolonging his pain. So again, William Lane Craig from Reasonable Faith Ministry said this, quote, other condemned criminals would have taken the first to ease the pain, the torment, and passed on the second so as to not prolong their horrific pain. But Jesus would take no shortcuts on the way to his redemption. So this final taking of it was moistening his lips, his throat, so that he could say, utter these two things he yet had to say. 
The sixth saying is, it is finished. It's finished. 19, John 19, 29. This vessel full of sour wine, verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, this is, this is the cry, not of defeat, but of victory. Many of you have heard that, know that. Tetelestai. It is finished. Literally, the debt is paid in full. Fully, clearly conscious of exactly what was going on. The debt's paid in full. Augustine said, Jesus gave up his life because he willed it, when he willed it, and as he willed it. Jesus said in John chapter 10, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I received from my Father. So his seventh saying was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In Luke 23, and when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus did not die the ordinary death of one who was crucified. He, had, he was in control of his death. He was fully conscious to the end. He gave his life voluntarily and suddenly. Thus, in verse 44, Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked if he was, had been dead for some time. So this surprised them that he was already, he gave up his spirit. He dismissed his spirit when it was done, when he had accomplished the work and said, it's finished. The debt's paid in full, so into your hands I commit my spirit. Death from crucifixion could come in many different ways. Acute shock from blood loss, dehydration, suffocation, heart attack induced by stress, a heart rupture from congestive heart failure, but we know what happened. The sword went into it. Blood and water came out, and some say he died of a broken heart. In verse 37, he cries out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Jesus died for you and for me. Complete control, willingly laid his life down. And then it says this in verse 38. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's incredible. This whole story is so absolutely incredible. Simultaneously upon Jesus giving up his spirit, the veil in the temple was torn in two. This was no doubt observed and reported by the priests who were at that moment conducting the Jewish evening sacrifice. Can you imagine being one of the priests? Yikes! What just happened? It was a sign that Jesus' death ended the need for repeated sacrifices for sin. Opened a new and living way in the very presence of God. Free and direct access to God. In 1 Timothy, it says, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He was mediating that for us on the cross. And when he gave up his spirit, it is finished. The debt is paid in full. I commit my spirit. <laughs> Access to God. Through his death, not the sacrifices that were being offered there at the temple. Through his death, sacrifice on the cross there at Golgotha. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That 
that throne of grace, we can access it now freely through Jesus Christ. A whole new covenant is being ushered in. Access is now a promise and a privilege for all believers. And this new covenant that we have now closeness to God, access to God by faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Next week, we begin our studies in Leviticus. It's just a great tie over. The way to walk with God is through sacrifice, the sacrifice. Apply. Wednesdays in March, after the Union Gospel Mission, we'll be continuing Colossians. And Colossians, the main theme is having a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. How's that happen? It's through the cross, through what Jesus accomplished for us. Closeness to God, access to God. The best commentary in the Bible is the Bible. In this case, the book of Hebrews. So I want to read some with you. I'll put it up on the screen. In Hebrews 5, who in the days of his flesh, Jesus, when he offered, had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears in the garden there, sweating great drops of blood, to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation. To who? To all who obey him. Hebrews chapter 6, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. So after he had patiently endured Abraham, he obtained the promise. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, the unchanging of his counsel. He confirmed it by an oath. He swore it. First, the oath, he promised it, and then he swore it. He didn't have to do that. But God did that, that we might have this, this more abundantly, this confidence to go in, in which it is possible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation to have fled for refuge, lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence where it is, behind the veil. The veil was rent in two. Behind the veil, access to the very presence of God because of Jesus' suffering on the cross and dying and giving up his life and ransom for all. And thus, we have access to God right now, this morning, at any time. He says, by two immutable things. He promised it. He swore to it. We might have strong consolation. We've fled for refuge. refuge. For refuge, they hold the hope set before us. Are you exercising yourself, dear brother and sister? Are you accessing the presence of God through Jesus Christ? the throne of grace. We have this hope. It's not based in us. It's not based on my good work. It's based on what Jesus accomplished on the cross when he cried out and said, it is finished. The debt is paid in full. I commit my spirit to you. And there, in that, when that, that veil rent in two, we got a different deal going on now. And Hebrews is the commentary on this. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entered the presence behind the veil. In chapter 9 of Hebrews, I don't know how many of these I'll go through here. Maybe read the whole book. That indeed even the first covenant had ordinance of divine service and earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And here it is behind the second veil. There's a veil going into the courtyard. There was a veil going into the Holy of Holies. Behind the second veil, the one that ripped. The part of the tabernacle is called the holiest of all. Notice. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, 
performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went along once a year, the Day of Atonement. We'll be studying this in Leviticus. That Day of Atonement, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. One time a year, the high priest went in there on the Day of Atonement. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. But God made sure to communicate very clearly Something has just changed. There's no need for a tabernacle. There's no need for an earthly priesthood. We have a tabernacle, Jesus Christ, not made with hands, that came and gave his body on the cross. And through that, his body, his death, we have access to God. Christ came, verse 11 of chapter 9, as high priest of the good things to come with a greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. In chapter 9, verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve God? We can serve God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of transgression for the, under the first covenant. Those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. One more. In chapter 10, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, applying Jesus' work by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. The only way into the presence of God is through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us on the cross. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. His sacrifice life tore the veil from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, once for all, one, one for all, once for all for anyone to come to Christ, to come to God, the very presence of God through Jesus Christ. So here we are, the death and burial. At the same time, this great earthquake shakes the earth. The graves were open. This is another, yikes! The, the, the veil's tent, the veil's rent in two. And then it says in Matthew chapter 27, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened. Wow. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection... Uncle Paul, I haven't seen you for a while. <laughs> they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This is the reality that God is making very clear. Access by Jesus Christ in his presence anytime through the blood of Jesus Christ. And those who have already died, risen again through that. The centurion, verse 39, when the centurion had, who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last said, truly this was the Son of God. He's watching this thing and going, he, 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 they'd seen many people die of crucifixion. He did, but none like Jesus. After two to three hours, most would slip into a coma and die. Not so with Jesus. He died with a shout of victory. In Luke 23, it says, and the whole crowd who came together to that, to came together to that site, seeing what had been done, 
beat their breasts and returned. And I think at least in part, this whole crowd turned away knowing that something they just witnessed was something horribly evil. And yet they saw something also in how Jesus himself died by giving up his spirit after forgiveness and all those things we, he said from the cross. And so the women watched from a distance, verse 40. There were also women looking on from afar. Among those were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Les, the less, and Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. The women were the last ones at the cross and the first ones at the tomb. They have an extraordinary place in the heart of God, in the gospel narratives. And then in verse 30, uh, in John chapter 19, therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. So if the victim didn't die quickly, they'd break the legs and it was very shortly they would die. So then it says, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And that was in fulfillment of a prophecy where it says, and John goes on to say, and he who's seen these, seen as testified, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones should be broken. And again, another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierce. In Exodus chapter 12, it says, In one house it shall be eaten, the Passover lamb. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. Jesus is our Passover lamb. The whole Passover deliverance was a picture of what Christ would do through the cross. In Psalm 34, it says, He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. It's incredible. The whole story. So then in verse 42 of Mark, you with me? Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that, that is the day of the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Because Joseph of Arimathea, evidently he was silenced when they sentenced Jesus, but no more. He, it says here, he took courage. He was taking courage because he was not related to Jesus. So really he had no grounds to come and ask for his body. He took courage because he risked ceremonial defilement himself as a Jew. He risked, he risked, he was, he was courage, he took courage. Now his request amounted to an open confession of personal loyalty to the crucified Jesus, which would put him at odds with all of his fellow workers, his fellow priests, his fellow councilmen. So here it is a few hours later, who was silent is no longer. And it just noted for me, I put it here, never give up praying for your, for your loved ones. Oh, they may be silent now, but who knows? Just a few hours later, here it is, the same man. And not only that, then uh, Nicodemus joined him, who was also a, came to Jesus by night, no longer. And so the centurion reports that Jesus is dead. Joseph takes his body. Jesus died around 3 p.m., which by the time they took the body down, would give them about two hours to prepare the body and bury it before the Sabbath began. So there's a time constraint taking place here at his death. Then he bought, verse 46, he brought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen. 
And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. So Nicodemus and Joseph prepare the body. Isaiah says, verse 50, chapter 53, verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So it's all these prophecies about this event are incredible. So Joseph of Arathea gives his tomb over to Jesus. It's been said that Joseph was criticized for giving up such an expensive tomb for Jesus. But Joseph just told them it's only for the weekend. <laughs> and then the two Marys watched the burial to close our chapter. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was, where he was laid. And then the Roman soldiers are given guard of the tomb by Pilate. Jesus crucified, hung on a cross, and died. His disciples had an agonizing three days. They thought that would never end. He's dead, he's gone, it's over. None of his disciples believed he'd rise from the dead, none. But three days later, just as Jesus had told them, he rose from the grave and presented himself alive after his suffering by many, um, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during the 40 days, speaking the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He, then he ascended into heaven, and we are anticipating his soon return. He is alive. He is our Savior. He is our everything. In six weeks, should the Lord tarry, on Easter Sunday, March 31st, we'll be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Truth is, as believers, every day should be a celebration of Jesus rising from the dead. However, there are many people who do not celebrate that. We want to change that. We want to see God change that, whether it's one or many. We want to see God save souls. We're praying for that first Monday of every month. We're seeing that happen. We'd like to see God moving. And so Easter is the most attended time of Sundays in, church, in, church, in churches. So you're going to be hearing about an outreach. It's called Try Praying. It's this little book here. Is it, has this been announced yet? Okay, well, try praying. No. <laughs> We're hoping that each of us will intentionally invite someone to an Easter service. There's 8, 9, 30, and 11. The invitation is, he is risen. Jesus is risen. So in six weeks, we'll celebrate the rest of the story by returning to Mark 16. Jesus died. He rose from the dead for you and for me and for all who will call upon his name. The cross of Jesus is one of the many paradoxes of the Christian faith. It is at once the greatest tragedy of the ages and at the same time the most glorious victory on earth as it is in heaven. We should not come to these scenes with a feeling of defeat or sympathy for, suffer, for the sufferer. We should walk softly, reverently, as we have through these scenes with a heart, welling up in thanksgiving to God for such Incredible salvation. The cross is everything to the Christian faith. We should walk worthy of the calling to which we're called. We should walk worthy of God who calls into his own glory, his own kingdom and glory. And thus, the guys can go get the communion ready. And just so you know, if you were here last week, we, we're going to use up our little cups this morning, okay? So it's got the cellophane thing on the top. 
and then the juice is underneath that in a second. Last week, I couldn't get mine open. So <laughs> we're switching. We already figured out we're switching back to our cups. Amen? But this is a sacred time. It's when we remember that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is everything. It's everything. Let's have the worship team come out. Here's what Paul wrote. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on that same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body, which is broken for you. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which we just looked at. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You proclaim the cross till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. There's a reverence that comes this time to see the cross. But let man examine himself. Then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Communion is a sacred time for us to examine ourselves, as we've done the last three Sundays. Jesus died for you and for me. We're going to proclaim his death until he comes. We look back at the cross. We know he's coming again. So right now, communion, we take it. We're in between those two events. And this is a time to examine ourselves. Now, what does that mean? It's to proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to God. There is no other way. It's to examine myself at the cross to proclaim that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. To examine myself at the cross is to proclaim Jesus' blood cleanses me from all sin. And to receive that as you're examining yourself. To examine myself at the cross is to proclaim my weaknesses in giving into temptation. In, in my wandering tendencies to, to stray from God. And to humble myself under his mighty hand and cast all my cares upon him. That's to examine myself at the cross. To examine myself at the cross to proclaim my need for Jesus in all things. I need you how I need you. To proclaim my need for his presence. That I am lost and hopeless without him. To proclaim my need for his power. That I am helpless without him. To proclaim my need for his provision, that I am empty without him and trusting him. To examine myself at the cross to proclaim my response ability through the power of the Holy Spirit as a believer. To lay my life down for him and to live it according to his word in obedience to the power of the Holy Spirit. That means I've been forgiven, so I'm to forgive. Do you have someone you need to forgive this morning? As I've been loved, so I am to love. Is there someone in your life that needs some love? Maybe they're a little unlovable. As I've been blessed, so my life is to be a blessing. It's more blessed to give than to receive. How can you give of your life? As I have received freely, so I'm to give freely, generously. In fact, the Bible even says hilariously. How generous are you? How trusting of the Lord are you in what you've been given? As I've been comforted, so I'm to comfort others and lift brothers and sisters. There's a lot of people that need a lot of comfort today. 
As I have been shown patience, so I'm to be patient. As I've received mercy, so I'm to be merciful. As I've received grace, so I'm to be gracious. So as the demos are passed out and we'll sing while they are, just get those, but take this time right now, as I will and we will, to just to come before the Lord at the cross and allow him to speak to your heart in all of his love, all of his grace, all of his mercy, in the things that are going on in your life right now. Let's do that.